Hello, everyone, and welcome back for the next edition of the Sports Pro Stream Time Podcast. My name is Chris Stone. I'm the community lead here at Sports Pro Media, joined as always by our CEO, Nick Meacham. So, Nick, we are recording this on the Friday before the Super Bowl, biggest day of the year. All the Europeans can yell at me and say that I'm wrong, but I'm going to die on that hill. <laughs> what are your expectations when this podcast comes out on Wednesday? Who's going to be the winner looking back? This is our moment to have some uh, accountability on some of our predictions. So maybe who do you think is going to win? And is there anything, maybe a further prediction or maybe something that you're looking out for from the business side that's going to take place on Sunday? Well, we're really trying to uh, talk our listeners into um, being all in on the NFL because if they if they aren't, they're going to get really annoyed with us uh, banging those drums. But I'm all, I'm all for it. Uh, look, I, I, I'm... Looking, I'm finding it hard to look past the Eagles for their team. I really like everything that they're doing on both sides of the ball. But Kansas City have been there. They've got Mahomes. He's been there three times now in the Super Bowl. They they've got a lot of experience to to sort of tap into when when it's crunch time. So tough, but I'm gonna go with the Eagles. Um, that's that's my pick anyway. You? So I'm also going to go with the Eagles, but I'm going to go a step further and say that the final score is going to be at least a two-possession ball game. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Big, bold predictions here. Um, the last time Mahomes was in a Super Bowl, he had a lower limb injury facing a very stout defensive line of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um, and he's coming into this Super Bowl with another lower limb injury facing another very stout, statistically best defensive line in the NFL. So, um, yeah, I think the Eagles win. And, you know, I think they win by at least 10 points. That's my bold prediction. We'll see how it looks on Wednesday when this gets released. And if anyone's wondering, we normally record this pod on the Monday, but unsurprisingly we've uh, moved this to friday to give a bit of a uh, bit of a runway particularly for chris because i will no doubt not make it through the super bowl uh so for he can recover uh after his festivities on the sunday night so good luck to I you chris i may or may not have had a drink yeah i may or may not have had a drink so uh you know it is what it is that's the one monday i need off but yeah you know it'll be a fun day nonetheless lots of lots of football but we will switch gears away from football though we are going to very quickly come back mm. to the nfl at some point in this conversation but one of the things you and i have been talking about for a little bit of time now and we finally decided the time to do it is to have a little bit of a deep dive on zone. You know, the Streamtime podcast, we're kind of looking all over the digital landscape, but there certainly is, hence the name, a, a focus on the, the streaming space. And zone was one of those companies we've talked about quite a bit in sort of their, you know, what they want their legacy to be in the space. So now today we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive on them. So I don't know if there's anything else you want to necessarily start this podcast off with, because I'm going to go ahead and kind of set the scene of where we're at today, unless you just want to add some further context. Well, look, I think we've been covering zone a fair bit over the last uh, 12 months plus since we've been doing this podcast, but we haven't taken the chance to really look end to end about the business and its approach. And it's also its approach has changed and evolved a lot over the last year and a bit. And I've done a bit of research looking into things, also looked at their accounts, which we'll dig into. So there's a lot more depth to, to this, I hope, than some of the conversations that we've had previously. So hopefully this will give people a real closer look and feel to the zone business than perhaps what you just see on the outside, what maybe gets covered in the news and the media that, that we also at SportsPro are covering are quite regularly as well. Absolutely. So I'll give a little bit of background on sort of where we're at today when it comes to DAZN. Their key markets include DAC. And for those of you that maybe like me, American, not as European centric, that includes Germany, Austria and Switzerland. But their other key markets also include Japan, Italy, Spain, Canada, the USA and the UK. Now, 
they have a number of key rights across all these different markets. They're not necessarily um, consistent from market to market, but they do work with the likes of the Bundesliga, La Liga, the Premier League, Champions League, Formula One, match bo- or matchroom boxing, just to name a few. So they do work with a number of some of the you know premier sports across the globe. Although that does change a little bit, and you know not only do those rights change, but kind of the way you can ex- access the zone as a platform from a price and sports perspective does change a little bit. Uh, market to market and sport by sport. Uh, for example, you can access some of their boxing via pay-per-view, but they also run a subscription model typically in the most part. But even within those subscription models, they do offer a different tiered model. You know, one example would be in Spain. Uh, currently for $24.99 euros per month on a rolling basis, or it is $19.99 with a minimum of a 12-month contract. But then you can also get a La Liga-only package for $18.99 or a $12.99 package for everything except Spanish soccer. So, you know, they are somebody that has global ambitions, but they are sort of operating at a, a local market-by-market basis, which includes which sports are included, the the pricing models, and sort of even kind of the monetization bits, whether it's pay-per-view or um, subscriptions. So they're doing a little bit of everything, and they're doing it all in different markets. And that's sort of where we've gotten to today, Nick. In terms of how we got here, you know, they are based in the UK, and they started off, you know, before then um, as, as Perform Group, if I remember correctly. Correct, you know, yeah. maybe, Nick, you can give a little bit of a history of, you know, that's how we got here today. Maybe a little bit of how we've gotten to this point. For sure. And I'll caveat from the beginning that I'm going off what I think I know. Uh, some things are have been researched and, and some of them are just going out of my brain. So uh, the old caveat, this is don't treat this as gospel. I'm not chat. GBT and uh, regurgitating the exact details here, but this is kind of the, the journey that I think they've they've been on, and also the take I've got on from the research that I've done. Um, but yeah, the, their journey came and they they were fostered out of Perform Group, which at the time was quite a uh, a real leader in the sports digital media space. They were working with a load of different sports properties right at the early stages of sports taking a more direct approach. Uh, to their media activities, um, and and they fostered out of there was a group of directors. The the names that come to mind are John Glazier, uh, James Rushton, and Simon Denyer were the the three key names that come to mind. I think I'm missing one or two, but they were kind of like the let's say the founding um, directors of of the design concept. And I haven't. They basically were they they launched they launched the the, the whole product, but the initial launch if I remember correctly, was um, in Japan, actually, where they were able to secure a deal with the J-League, uh, which is quite a comprehensive deal at the time. Gosh, I think the number was in, it was it was a nine-figure deal, uh, 100 or 200 million or something like that, to be the, the new home of the J-League moving forward. And there was a few reasons for that at the time, I believe, was you know, in terms of Japan's adoption of, of um, streaming and the tech infrastructure that supports streaming was just in a, a, in a great place. And obviously the J-League was willing to really make a big commitment by going into, into partnership with DAZN at that time. And that was, the, that was the, launch, the launch pad, I suppose, for DAZN to launch that quintessential Netflix of sports brand, which has been used and perhaps abused since when when they launched, I think it was actually in their press release, if I remember correctly, when they they, they did launch the business. And so that was the sort of the starting point for them. And they had a very simplified business model, which I think did really replicate Netflix in many ways. One is a single and simple price for subscription, so a monthly price point. Uh, and that was pretty much standardized across market by market. 
and, and that was pretty much it. You know, in terms of they, they shifted into boxing and uh, fight sports became a huge area of focus, particularly in the US, um, when John Skipper joined as chairman, who's ex-ESPN, because uh, most of them, the main premier media rights were all tied up. But their, their, their sort of positioning was that you weren't going to have to pl- do pay-per-view then. It was going to be you just pay for the monthly service like any subscriber would and you get ex- access to all this incredible fight sports. Now, where we are today is very different to what that looked. There's a lot of learnings I think they've had over time. So, for example, you mentioned pay-per-view in the, in the run-up. Pay-per-view is now part of that business model again. The pricing model does change market to market. But, yeah, now there's been a, a, quite an evolution and a journey they've had since they, they first launched. Now, you know, what is that, you know, I guess the question would be, is there anything before we really jump into the meat and potatoes that you think along that evolution, this new ownership group is perhaps planting their flag is this is where we want to take it? Because you mentioned those three names at the top. They're still kind of vaguely associated, but not necessarily that day-to-day leadership per se. Is there anything before we kind of really go into the meat and potatoes you think has changed with the strategy, particularly under this new group? Yeah, sure. So it's so in, in essence, it's not a new new group per se. So they, they when they launched, they were funded and backed by a man called Len Blavatnik and his uh, business called Access Industries. Len Blavatnik is one of the is a is a multi-billionaire um, business owner, I think based in the UK. Um, and has been bankrolling this initiative from pretty much from day one. So I'm sure that there's there's a story there around how the directors were able to pitch this to him and he was on board with it. Over the last few years, and he has been bankrolling them, the, the, the losses of, of the amount that's been invested into this this project and this product and platform and this this journey, I think range, ranges to something like they've had $6 billion in, in losses, I think is the number, I if I remember correctly. Um, and he's been the primary person bankrolling and funding and loaning the money to this business. Um, over the last few years, um, those other directors have actually started to step away. So James Rushton and Simon Denyer have taken steps away from the day-to-day running of DAZN. Uh, and now I believe only John Gleaser is uh, remaining in the the directorship. So on, on paper, he's a director. Not sure how involved he is. I think he's more of an advisor than a, an active director. And effectively, they brought in a new CEO, Shai Segev, I think is, is how I pronounce his name. He comes from Entain, which is a, 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 is a big, a huge betting uh, business, which has a multitude of brands, which most people would be familiar with. Um, and he's coming to the business to kind of shift it in and get it basically set up for for the next the next phase and stage. So that initial, uh, the initial founding group are much less involved with it than they were at the beginning. Um, they might have shares and stuff in, in, in place still. I'm, I'm not too sure the specifics there, but John is, is the last one remaining out of that group. But it is important to note that there is a, a new sheriff in town, I suppose, and a new leadership sort of group in there. Uh, there's new CFO, uh, new CEO, uh, and a new leadership team there that is driving a, a quite a definitive shift in the approach of that organization now. Well, speaking of the now, it would be impossible for us to do that without talking about some of the breaking news that happened this week, which sits near and dear to my heart as a current subscriber um, and brings us back into the NFL talk. But one of the big news this year or this week, not this year, I suppose technically it's only February. This year's not that this far into, but this week, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this week, the NFL is going to be making a change in their strategy when it comes to international streaming of its services. And it's now going to move that into DAZN. So Nick, 
there, there's certainly been some questions around this. We've seen the press release, and I know you've been doing some deep dive research and trying to gather some intel, but maybe just at the top level, you know, what is it and what do we need to know about what this move is? Okay, so, so nuts and bolts from what I understand is that the NFL Game Pass, there's two, there's two versions. One is the US version and one is the international version. And this is representative of the international version. So basically everything outside of the US NFL Game Pass used to sit as a standalone app. And for what I understand, again, I'm caveating that, probably the hopefully the one final time I have to keep caveating that because it's going to be more of it uh, through this, is that NFL Game Pass International will now be part of DAZN's app and platforms. So if you want to subscribe to the NFL Game Pass International, you will have to access it via DAZN's various platforms. Uh, the example I have used uh, in my own thinking of this is it's a bit like with Formula One in the UK, where Sky Sports is effectively the home for F1. F1 has its own app and platform, uh, has F1 TV, but none of the OTT rights, the live rights are actually available in that platform. They sit um, within Sky Sports' own offering. It's, it's similar, but different and what my point there is is you can you don't need to even be a subscriber a paid for subscriber of the zone to be signing up to the game pass international i'm just going to say game pass moving forward because we're only going to be talking about the international product here um you would you can subscribe to it through them so you don't have to even be a subscriber of the zone to do that but you will have to do it through the zone you can also be a subscriber of the zone and pay an upgrade fee to access the platform and, and that's pretty much it from all at least pretty much it from all we know today how will that change the experience well as i said your relationship will no longer be with the nfl directly if you want to subscribe to the game pass you will be doing it through DAZN. the game pass will be from what i understand built on DAZN's tech stack and tech architecture which is important because if we for the people that work in the industry would know that the game pass international proposition has been built with delta tray uh, and two circles partnership to deliver that product I have tried to reach out to a number of people to find out what is happening with those relationships moving forward. It is still unclear to me from the most confidence that uh, was the most consistent message I have had is that Game Pass International will be built on DAZN's tech stack moving forward, which to me sounds like it will no longer be a partnership with Delta Tray on delivering that. I've not got that 100% confirmed, but that is what I'm hearing from multiple um, avenues. So that is quite an interesting and significant move. It's kind of happened quite quietly. Uh, an additional layer to this is DAZN have paid a fee. The reports are from, uh, I think Forbes are reporting this through NFL insiders, um, that the deal's worth as much as a billion dollars over the 10 years. That's, that's unconfirmed. The, and the, the other layer to this is that DAZN will be serving or managing advertising sales, I suppose, within the Game Pass itself. So... I think that's the the summary of the situation there in terms of significantly. So DAZN, in short, has secured these rights for the next 10 years. They've paid allegedly or reportedly from Forbes about a billion dollars for that opportunity. They will be able to monetize that through subscription sales to the platform, through DAZN's platform and not on a standalone Game Pass app. And they'll also be able to sell advertising in, in certain markets where advertising is available in Game Pass. In some markets, I don't believe I remember in the UK having ads served actively in the Game Pass product itself. Could be wrong there. But that's that's it in a nutshell. That's a very big in nutshell, actually, of, isn't it? It's more than a nutshell. Yeah. That's more like a, 
a big synopsis. Yeah. Well, in terms of maybe some of the, the financial side of this, you know, Game Pass International, I think you could describe as purely D to C. Now that's, you know, being uh, essentially my subscription is going directly to the NFL. Now I'm going to be paying this subscription via the zone, you know, from a, I guess from a money perspective, how do you understand that this relationship's going to work? Uh, you know, obviously DAZN is paying that fee to them. Are they going to then take all the subscription because they've now gone and paid that money to the NFL? Or do you think there's going to be some sort of uh, revenue split with that? Yeah, I don't know for sure, but I would say that typically these types of like platform and distribution deals, typically how they look is something like there's a minimum guarantee that DAZN will commit Again, this is hypothetical and guesswork, but typically if there's a platform that's securing a set of rights or a product that's ingested into it, they will pay. They will com commit to a minimum guarantee of revenue to the rights owner. Um, in this case, it would be the NFL. Uh, and then there'll be a rev share involved within that. So it might be a rev share from day one, but there's a minimum guarantee that they'll hit at different uh, deadlines and ten poles, uh, and that's effectively the model. It's not too complicated. It can be quite nuanced, of course, but that's the macro version. It's a it's a it's a rev share on subscription sales with a minimum guarantee. So the risk is mitigated for the NFL. They don't have to worry about you know if it absolutely tanks. They'll know they'll get a minimum amount. So the risk really does sit with DAZN there. DAZN have the responsibility to market it and drive sales to it because they're they're at most risk in a deal like that. That is typically how they look anyway. So, you know, I guess for us, you know, being candid, being honest, we've had conversations. We love the idea of what DAZN wants to be and what it wants to represent. We've also had concerns about how feasible it will be, how long of a runway they had remaining, I think is kind of the terminology we talk about. And, you know, part of that is what you described, which is a lot of those major attractive rights, they were all kind of, long-term signed away they weren't necessarily going to be a, a an opening to get into that what does a deal like this mean for them in terms of credibility um earnings opportunities you know how, how significant is this for them well it's, it's it's significant for a few reasons one is by doing a deal with the nfl it will definitely open the door for more deals like this to happen more interested parties to come knocking on the zone's door to say hey we're interested in doing a similar deal and relationship with you. Um, we've seen in the industry this, this shift and this ebbs and flows of going direct to consumer, doing it yourself and working with broadcast partners. We've talked a lot about the WWE Peacock type of deal. We've talked about F1 and Sky Sports. We've talked about the NBA's version of that and doing it themselves at an international level uh, and creating more of a destination, not just built around the, the live proposition. Um, but this whole concept that it looks like the zone is making a move for, which it didn't look like this beforehand, but this is kind of the thing we've talked about in previous pods about what Apple could be doing or what Roku's doing, you know, in looking to create a single home and destination for for sports streaming content. Um, you think about it, these types of deals don't have to be exclusive, although in this case, from what I understand, the deal is the exclusive home of Game Pass which is very nuanced, but it's not the exclusive home for the live matches. So in the, for example, the UK, Sky's, Sky Sports deal still will continue to exist to have live matches. So it's interesting because it, it sort of finds a way to go around to the existing architecture, I suppose, of um, the live rights space where actually live rights typically um, in the, in Europe are limited to those four win, four year windows um, because of or three year windows because of anti competitor law. Well, 
this is a 10-year deal globally, but I don't think it's going to fall into that sort of that whole world because it, it's it's a platform um, placement rather than um, just a rights acquisition itself. And those rights are still available through different partners. So yeah, in short, I mean, DAZN's model here, um, from, when I, from what I've heard and understand is they were going from being this single destination. Now they're doing, you know, we talked about it recently. Actually, I don't know if we talked about it in the podcast, but we've covered it, is they've recently done this big deal with Amazon Prime and Prime Video to have DAZN available on on Prime's platforms, uh, I think globally uh, as well. So um, they're trying to be in every shop window and trying to be in, in as many places and discover uh, as many places as possible to give themselves the most chances of basically selling subscriptions and getting more more audiences. And I think that the goal will be, this is just the starting point for DAZN to try and build um, these types of relationships with other rights holders to go, hey, bring your bring your platform, your OTT platform into ours, into our ecosystem. We'll help you sell it. We'll create this sort of channel, sort of channels concept, which again, like a prime video has, where they've got something like 50, 50 different channels, I think in, in the the U, UK, from what I understand, and that changes market by market. But do that from a sports perspective, and then you can go to the zone, you can decide whether you want to sign up to the NFL or any one of the other sports properties they might be working with. So I really feel this is probably a, a flag in the ground for the zone to say, hey, well, this is the first deal of many that we're going to be going out to market with. I guess what's interesting is the goal was to be the Netflix of sports, and that probably at the time meant getting exclusive rights, um, which is obviously a much more expensive proposition to do that. Um, they pretty much got locked out of that just because of the length of some of those deals, but this is almost kind of like a back door to that. Now, granted, there's going to be limitations in the sense of geographic regions or um, the fact that you know some of those deals might not, you know, the NFL has always done a really good job of leaving um, openings to to sign other deals like this, but it is kind of it is interesting. You know, is there perhaps a downside to this particular strategy that you know it it seems like oh this maybe was an idea they could have started with? Is there a reason why maybe being pushed to this isn't maybe as rose tinted as as it sounds? Well, well, I think from the concept of someone else doing it beforehand or them doing it beforehand, I don't know if the technology was just quite at the level it needed to be to be able to create this environment where you can start serving secondary platforms in your own platform and, and manage the subscriptions and the sales in, in the right the right way to where it is today to, to be able to pull that off you know it's still there's still a risk in a uh, there's still a risk involved from design to take this opportunity on it's a big commitment financially whether it is the billion dollars or, or not that's been that's been reported but it gives them a really an extra layer to their offering that can make it more likely that you know, people like you and I will, will actually go on to design platform and consider subscribing either to design as a whole or just to the game pass because they've got more breadth and more options available that because otherwise they were never really going to be able to unlock a bunch of markets. This gets some scale really quickly to have an impact and have a place that um, it starts to, I guess, ramp up their position and having the NFL on board. It's a, you know, it's it's a major sports property to do a deal that is global like this is is pretty unheard of um, in this industry. You know, normally it's a market by market approach that you do see. So for them to be able to do this, it does really put again a, a sort of a flag in the ground that we're we're really going for this. Um, they've you know looking from what I've seen from some of the, the numbers and, and their approach, they aren't stopping their approach to 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 you know to, to spending on on media rights. But they, they have to be very confident 
that they're going to have impact because they've obviously spent a lot of money up until this point. So look, it's there's not too much. There's risk involved when you have to commit this sort of outlay. Um, I don't. I think it's a great move for them. I do wonder what the journey is going to be like for users. You know, if you think about the example I gave about Prime Video, well, in theory, you'd have to be a subscriber of Prime Video to go to the zone to then go to Game Pass. Now, obviously, the the ideal that's not the ideal journey, but that is a a, a possibility based on the the previous, re, recent partnerships they do. So that would be a bit messy for a user, but that but I do think that it's going to at the very least open more doors for DAZN to cross-sell partners of people who maybe were interested in the Game Pass to, hey, come and spend a bit of extra money, only 10, 20 pounds a month or whatever it might be, and you can access the the wider catalogue of DAZN as well. So yeah, really interesting to see how this this plays out and if it can give them a cross-sell opportunity that is quite unique, I suppose. Well, the other user experience element that I'm interested in, you know, I've only ever known the Game Pass platform to be one way, and that's the Delta Treyway, which, you know, I... I did it have its issues, sure, whatever. But like at the same time, like I used it happily for many years. What I will be curious to know is one of the things that Dizona talked about was getting more betting involved with the platform and all those mm. other different features that they wanted to include to try to basically create a more sticky platform. So I would be curious to know not just the experience in terms of how you log in, sign in, all those different things, if some of that DAZN technology or some of the other things that, you know, probably come off the back of Shay's background at Entain will potentially be incorporated into the, the Game Pass experience. I think that's something that, you know, football there's obviously a lot of betting involved different spreads it's very statistically driven we'd just be curious you know if they they will do anything for the actual user experience beyond just you know some of the more basic stuff but the actual sat there viewing it experience yeah completely i, I do recall looking at the the release there which had you know roger goodell's name attached to it as well and the things that did get referenced multiple times was uh the tech stack that Dizona using um and also you know, the marketing initiatives and fan engagement tools are part of that. So I do feel like that's going to play a role. I have no idea how that's going to work practically because, you again, you talked about the legacy of we don't even know for sure 100% yet if it's going to be lifting the Delta Tray version and plugging that into the zones or is it actually rebuilding Game Pass completely uh, into the zone uh, tech architecture and doing a full migration. I, I don't know how that will play out. I don't have enough technology. I have a base idea of how tech migrations work, but not enough to know how achievable all that is. And then the ability to then just start throwing in all of DAZN's, uh fan engagement initiatives, betting initiatives into that. Um, that's a complex world, which I'm no doubt we'll see more of in the future, but definitely must be some upside into this in this partnership, that's for sure. Well, as someone that will anecdotally be paying for it, I will very much be paying attention to it. <laughs> but one of the other things that, you know, we when we originally talked about doing this to Zone Deep Dive was they recently published, you know, their financial report on how 2022 went. Um, and I forget exactly how many pages it was, but I'm pretty confident in you telling me it's over 100 pages long. Um, and you went through it and, you know, fine comb every little nook and cranny, every little detail you could find um, quite extensive. And, you know, there were some interesting things there, not only just from the financial side of things, they just talked about some of the performance across 2022. Um, they mentioned there were 1.2 billion with a B billion hours stream globally, that they're now the largest digital sports broadcaster in Europe, and that they have over 15 million paying 
uh, premium subscribers. Um, that was some of the numbers around the viewership. I don't know if any of those particular numbers stick out to you that you'd sort of just, whether you think, oh, that's a great number, or maybe I have some questions about that um, before we kind of dive into the financial side. Yeah, look, um, so the, the accounts that I went through uh, came out uh, at the start of this year, but actually for the, the year of 2021. So the hard part is when you're looking at something effectively a year and a half ago is it, it, particularly in a fast moving world like we're in and what the zones business is, um, you don't get the full picture. You don't get the current picture. You can get a sense of where they're going and maybe some of the things that have happened along the way. And you have to be following that business to, to know. But I think from the numbers that they've shared, you know, the fact that they've got 15 million paying subs subscribers is, is not insignificant. Um, you, you look at the other, other properties that exist, you know, at a global scale, I think Netflix is in a couple of hundred millions if you want to start comparing it that way. So 15 million uh, is, isn't to be sneezed at, that's for sure. Where it gets a bit tricky is that the, the cost of media rights um, are quite expensive to buy and acquire. And so how that measures with cost is where it gets a bit interesting because when you start looking at the numbers a bit further, you know, the numbers you know look significant in terms of turnover but then you look at the losses and the, the losses are matching the the revenue um what sorry what i mean by that is they're losing as much as they are turning over which is a pretty huge gap in the the, the sort of the p l so um no in terms of those numbers i think they are significant it's the first time i think i've seen numbers that talk about the subscriber base they've got um i do think generally it's interesting on how you measure viewership generally you know in terms of They've put how many hours? Did you say it was a billions of hours? Um, 12, 1.2. 1.2 billion. Sounds amazing. How do you contextualize that? No idea. But I do think measuring by time is one of the best measures you can do for people's engagement. Um, we've talked about that internally as, as a media business. You know, how, how much is a, a view worth on social media to what it's worth on your platform? Um, and time's a great measure of that. So anyway, they're big numbers. You have to start comparing them against the others to get a sense of how significant they, they really are. But yeah, some, some nice numbers to be throwing around to set the scene of how, how your scale is. Well, you know, that was the viewership numbers, but then there's a whole lot of pages talking financial numbers. And even in the uh, run up to this conversation, you had to educate me a little bit on different abbreviations like EBITDA, um, you know, whatever that's supposed to mean. I'm sure you can give us a quick run through what that is. But in terms of the financial numbers, you know, you were able to, I think, speak to some folks at DAZN to try to get some clarity on this just because it is quite a dense document not only is it over 100 pages but i'm sure there's a lot of financial talk in there you know are there particular numbers that came up in there that you circled as big highlights or maybe things that you had to to double check just to get some clarity on sure well the the, the top line numbers you know 2.3 billion in revenue which is a 70 percent increase year on year is a, is a decent number but like i said before there's 2.3 billion of losses in the same year most of that's attributed to the fact that they've acquired the major um, bundesliga and Serie A rights in in germany and italy respectively but those numbers are still pretty significant gap to follow what's not clear is how much is still left outstanding to how much of that is the cost covered of the whole media right cycle versus an upfront what's upfront basically and what's still remaining in those those deals um, a few other numbers that do come to mind the the operating losses grew to 1.35 billion uh, operating costs are up to 2.9 billion that's up 44% um, but their operating margin had dropped to 87% uh, what's interesting is they spent 2 billion dollars on rights for the year 
uh, and they've really upped their investment into original content and marketing, which is up to nearly half a billion dollars in 2021. So, so that, I mean, there's some top level numbers, but just to give you a sense of scale, there's two and a half thousand employees on their books at the time of those accounts, which uh, gives you again, again, a sense of the scale of that business and, and operation. Uh, and there's a few other numbers we could dig into depending on sort of what direction we want to, to take mm. this, I suppose. Well, I thought, thought the other one, the, the big significant number was the group has $6.4 billion um, in rights commitment from the end of December 21 in that financial report. So they, they certainly have a lot tied up that they're hoping they can make their money back on. Yeah, definitely. You're talking about $1.9 billion uh, is due within the next 12 months. Uh, and like, sorry, last year, and then another four billion over those those years two to five, with a further half a billion dollars still tied up in years five and onwards. So, yeah, there's plenty of deals in place. What is interesting from an accountancy perspective, which you don't get this full visibility on, is again how much of those rights deals that they actually do have, how the the costing is is spread. That wasn't clear, and I didn't get a chance to ask that question specifically. Yeah. Well, one of the things I think came across, you know, it sounds like their new goal and speaking of Ibitata and all those good things is DAZN's new goal is reaching profitability. You know, in terms of sort of what these numbers say to you, kind of the where their the trajectory is, you know, how feasible do you think that is? Or do you think the things that they are doing are bringing them closer to that goal? Sure. I mean, one of the things they've been saying in uh, very publicly and, and also to us is, you know, their goal is to be profitable and profitable by, um, I believe it, they're actually aiming for, well, originally it was 2024, but the feedback I had was they're actually aiming that in Q4 this year, so the end of 2023, they are looking to achieve profitability in that quarter. Now, when I hear that, I obviously get initially skeptical because the, 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 the money we're talking on the losses is so significant. And sometimes, you know, from quarter to quarter, even year to year, you can be smart with how you account things. For example, they might have front-ended some of their media rights costs to, to to manage those things. I'm not saying they did, but that it's hard to know when, you, when you're not that close to the numbers. But what they have said in addition to hitting it this year in Q4 is that that is ongoing profitability from 2024. So what they are saying is that in 2024 onwards, they will be profitable. And in effectively, as in sort of nine months time or so, they are looking to be a profitable business, which would be an incredible uh, achievement, uh, beyond incredible. I think everyone in the industry would love to see this actually happen for a few reasons. One, because it would give some validation of the sports streaming landscape and that it is heading in the right direction because there are some concerns about what's happening at a... Uh, at a streaming level at the, the the top end with some of the big broadcasters uh, and also because DAZN has been a, a first mover in this space and it would be great to see if they could they could achieve that but equally when you're talking about two billion losses in 2021 if they can seriously turn that around to to a basically a profitable business in two years when you're talking about revenues of only two billion dollars that is again pretty incredible achievement if it's a, if it is achievable. So they are. It's not very often you would get a business uh, or a leadership group to be so clear cut to say we are going for this and this is what we're aiming for and we're going to do it. Um, so you've got to love the confidence that's coming out of there. Yeah, and best of luck to them. And you know, part of the reason they're they're making this move towards profitability is this inevitability that at some point they're going to be looking at an IPO. Does this, do these moves, these reports or what you're hearing as you're going through this research, does this say anything more about 
when that that could be taking place? Well, there's a couple of things in it. I think everyone's pretty pretty on board with that's likely the the, the objective here is to to IPO at some stage. Now, uh, when that is, I did ask that question, and they, their their answer was pretty understandable. It was once it feels like it's re- it's fulfilling its potential, but for now it means continuing to grow, create new pricing strategies, keep growing the business leveraging technology, et cetera, et cetera. Everything else will come naturally after that. So that's that's the, the line that they, they gave me. Uh, I know that there's, I did see from the, the accounts, there is a few uh, shareholders uh, that exist that have deals tied into possible IPOs, um, which I can't, I'm not going to try and explain because I don't really quite understand it completely. But all that means is there's, there was a timeline of that, which is pretty imminent in the next couple of years. So my gut is I think they want to move within the next couple of years if they can. But as long as they're showing upwards trajectory, they got one of the richest billionaires, at least in the UK, back bankrolling them. I don't think they're going to be freaking out about an IPO unless unless there's a, there's a real attractive reason to do so. The market itself generally in the media and streaming world has flattened out its valuations of media businesses, which kind of would make it less appealing to do that now. Um, but if they can show profitability, if they can show profitability at the end of this year, there is no reason they couldn't IPO then because that would be enough of a runway in a story and the data and the, the financials would show the trajectory was going up and up and up and would be appealing to people to invest into. The question would be there for me, for me would be the market situ- landscape and whether the market's ready to value that business at the multiples that they would be hoping for off the growth uh, growth they've had. Now, something we didn't talk about beforehand, so sorry if I throw you under the bus on this one. You know, this wouldn't be the first time we've seen a platform like this, you know, go with an IPO. We're quite familiar with the Fubo TV story. And, you know, we love how every time we tweet about Fubo, we inevitably get lots of people (laughs) um, complaining about the stock price. You know, do do you think for them to zone doing this... how their situation differs. Are they in a better position to do something like that? Because, you know, we have seen, it's not an apples to apples comparison, but, you know, it it wouldn't necessarily be the first of its kind either. Uh, Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be a question mark around an IPO. I think these days there's more skepticism around IPO than they were, say, about five to 10 years ago, where it was everyone's dream to be be IPO'd. Um, But what they will be inheriting if, if it goes to market as an IPO will be a very a very mature business that's very well established and on the way up. Whereas something like a Fubo, when it IPO'd, was very early stages. Uh, and I can't remember the full story. I'm, I'm wondering whether it was a SPAC or not. But uh, I don't think it was. But basically, it was very early stages with very limited revenue on the board and, and limited runway. So... A, a really a different sort of, uh, I guess, landscape to to be to be measured against. I don't, I wouldn't have too many concerns about that, given they would have so much, uh, you know, deals locked in, uh, paying customers, and they would have a really uh, mature financial situation to be able to give to potential investors to say this is why we're worth investing in. The Fubo TV type partnerships is is from the days that. There's a lot more speculation in the market, and people would people were willing to invest and double down on speculation in in the public markets. That stuff doesn't, I don't think, is really on the cards quite as much these days in pub in, in the IPO world. At least from what I've seen, anyway. I'm not, I, I do not profess to be a finance expert, uh, particularly not on the share on the stock market. But I, I don't think they would be nearly as concerned about that if if they did. Well, 
you know, it's just got me thinking about these power rankings we're going to do in about 10 months time when we get back to Madrid and where the zone's going to be and all these different talks. Um, one of the other things that came up, you know, and you mentioned earlier on, for the most part, the zone has been reliant kind of on a single financial backer. Um, and I believe sort of the quote here is, you know, talking about continued support of shareholders, access industries to fund its operation. You know, was there anything particularly in the the reporting there that you kind of saw in terms of where some of that funding is, or if there's anything particular um, that stands out on how that might change or might need to change or what their plans are from that perspective? Yeah. One of the interesting things in, in these types of financials is I've seen a few in my time and they all, they all kind of look a bit different, but what I took from this one, and again, I haven't spent a lot of time looking at accounts of this scale, but there's a lot of narrative in there sort of describing the situation they've got. For what it's worth, there's like five or six different law firms involved with just a, with the zone's business, which I thought just interesting as a as sort of a scale uh, piece. But no, what, what it sort of outlines is that there is an absolute need and reliance on the continued funding of their majority shareholder in Access Industries and Len Blavatnik to, to keep funding them. Without them, they would have huge risk. Uh, that is an actual narrative in the accounts that comes up several times. Now, I did ask them about that and uh, they they were just suggesting that is quite common technolo- uh, terminology to see in accounts for a business um, business of its scale that's trying to grow. Um, they want to reaffirm they've got great support from access industries and so forth. And to be honest, I wouldn't be too worried about that. You know, if they if they've they've mapped out that they're going to be profitable by the end of this year, there's no way that he would stop funding that um between now and then if that's the roadmap because he's got too much riding at riding at stake for it since all the billions that's been invested to this point. Yeah, you've already you've already you've already wrote it this far. Um in terms of, you know, there's another number there you talked about, the broadcast partnerships generated nearly a hundred million into these accounts. And I think you sort of were asking around what what that sort of meant or where that hundred million came from and how that that works for a platform like DAZN? Yeah, it was interesting. So one of the there's a couple of lines in the their accounts around um, their finances. Um, not it's not very profound. There's not a lot of depth to it. But one of these basically, I think it's it's platform related revenues. Another one's this broadcast partnerships. I thought that would be something to do with around these these sort of global deals we're starting to see with the PFL and others. Um, but actually what it is, it's more to do with their, I think it's more to do with their legacy business of, of basically acting as an agent, a media rights agency for a bunch of rights holders. Uh, and really they were generating, they've generated 100 million of revenue off the back of that. What is not clear is the costs related to that. So how, how that costing model is. But what I have uh, heard or got a sense of is, that type of business, that media rights business that sat within it, A, sat completely or very separate to the rest of their operation of DAZN, but but also isn't a priority moving forward. So I think, oh, I'm trying to remember the deal now. I think they've. I think it might have been European Handball was announced as a deal that they have renegotiated. Basically, that is to step away from that media rights responsibility, again, just focusing on their core business. So, yeah, we've also seen other moves they've made with other businesses that fit within the design group and probably legacy of perform uh, as well. Those um, those businesses they've started to step away from as well as in, in this instance to focus on just their core business and driving that forward. Well, speaking of some of those finances and, you know, making it profitable, you know, one of the other things you talked about within there um, is some of the ownership stakes that DAZN has in other businesses. You know, for me, I'm 
familiar with stats perform. I'm familiar, familiar with uh, Meadowlark is one of those, but there's a, there's a handful of companies in there just kind of talking about what those latest financials mean with some of those other ownerships. You know, is there anything particularly um, you think is worth sharing with the audience to kind of elaborate what that all means? Well, I think it's just for a minute, yeah, to rewind the clock back a bit, I guess the zone had its fingers in a few different pies or investments in a few different businesses. And uh, over the last couple of years, they tried to, um, sell off basically some of those shares and investments to fund the growth of the business stats perform was one of those football co football co was another one of those uh sporting news was another one of those uh, and basically they were uh, yeah divesting i think is the term you would use uh, out of those businesses to to bring in more cash and and bank bankroll that is own uh, core business. Uh, the, there is some stuff you get a sense of if you were interested to know about some of the size of those businesses, you started getting a sense of the turnover of, of some of those operations. They still do, however, retain, again, this is from what I can read in the numbers. So again, I might have this wrong, but I think from what I can tell is they retain a 30%, 32% share in Football Co. And I still retain a 20% share in Stats Perform. Uh, and they also have... Uh, equates to 1.9 million in shares in Meadowlark, which Meadowlark, for those that don't know, is a business that was set up, it's a media business that was set up by John Skipper, who was the former chairman of DAZN uh, and moved into prioritizing Meadowlark once he, I think, stepped away from DAZN, the chairmanship of DAZN for what it's worth. It's also worth noting that Kevin Mayer, who is the chairman today and who I'll be incidentally speaking with at uh, the Sports Priority T Summit in New York, in next month is also from ESPN and, D and Disney days. So they uh, no doubt have a relationship from, from back then, but uh, it's interesting to see that, you know, there's, there's some, there's some still a significant, I guess, proportion of those businesses. They still do hold on to, even though they did divest from them uh, quite significantly over the last couple of years. Now, something, you know, talking about ownerships, acquisitions and whatnot, something we, we kind of briefly touched on, it It almost feels like a piece of news that's maybe kind of gone under the radar um, compared to some of the other things is the, however you want to describe that merging of DAZN and 11 Sports. Was there anything from this report or anything in terms of kind of that interaction you've had with some of the, the folks at DAZN that brings a little bit more clarity on to, to what this actually is? Yeah, it was interesting because um, I haven't seen much coverage of the 11 sports, I call it, I think it's an acquisition, so the 11 sports acquisition um, as to what the deal was, uh, why it was done and what it means for those two businesses. Um, but one thing that comes across in their, their accounts is that uh, 11 sports was effectively acquired through a share, uh, a share transaction. So the numbers show that 5% of standard shares and 5% of growth preference shares, which I'm not quite sure what that actually means, but 5% of standard shares plus 5% of growth preference shares were used to pay for the acquisition of 11 sports. There was also a loan of around $35 million that was provided to uh, 11 sports to fund the business, I suppose. It's a loan. It's not uh, an actual cash um, it's not cash transacting in the deal itself. And that is the first coverage that we've seen of that deal. So for those that were wondering, I suppose, um, whether or not the 11 Sports uh, Ownership Group, the ASA Media Group, which is Andrea Radrizani, who's also the Leeds uh, United owner, whether what they got out of that deal, effectively that what they got is they got shares into the DAZN business. And that business or those businesses are now 
merging and aggregating together uh, as we we speak. Um, so interesting to see the type of deal that had him, they they took and accepted. My guess is they've given them an insight into what the, the strategy is longer term about possible IPO and and exit opportunities as well. But yeah, that's a bit of bit of insight into what those two businesses uh, or what what Eleven Sports has brought to the table for DAZN and vice versa. I'll be honest, when you start talking about uh, shares this, loans this, it just makes me think of uh, Chelsea's transfer strategy over the last month where they spent something like 600 million pounds and not quite sure how they uh, split and diced everything. That's basically what I'm hearing. Look, it's just uh, numbers on paper. It's just numbers on paper ultimately, right? Until uh, <laughs> it's just money, you know, it doesn't doesn't really, really matter. No, it's, it's interesting just to see how they've used shares as part of the transaction. They've also acquired a few other businesses over that time. I'm not too sure the details there, but uh, look, I mean, it's, it doesn't sound like it's a complicated deal is, is uh, I guess, the most interesting part for me. So in terms of, you know, where some of that revenue is coming from, you know, I thought one of the things that was interesting, you, you talked about of the 1.56 billion, 1.08 of that is coming from Europe, 238 of that is coming from Asia Pacific, I, I presume mostly from Japan, but then it's only 192 from America, you know. I know they don't have a lot of rights. I just thought maybe um, some of the boxing stuff may have been a little bit bigger, but that's maybe just be a little naivety on my part. Um, one of the other things you also mentioned, kind of briefly talking about some of those broadcast partnerships with the likes of Amazon, you know, in terms of kind of going through those revenue splits and where that money is, you know, necessarily coming in, was there anything in particular that, that's worth uh, mentioning or talking about from your eyes? And then perhaps maybe talking a little bit more about some of those broadcast partnerships that they do have in place with someone like an Amazon? Yeah, you, you're completely. I think you're spot on with regards to the revenue split. I thought it was interesting to see the the numbers there. Asia Pacific was probably a bit lower than I expected. So was USA. But you'd have to look and go back and see what events um, they were having, particularly that were relevant to the US, because most of the US revenue, I would guess, is built around the boxing. Um, and now more recently shift to pay-per-view and even the timelines of when pay-per-view was in play, I can't really be sure of. So I haven't done too much uh, investigative uh, analysis around that. Um, but yeah, those, those revenues are significant. You're talking hundreds of millions of dollars uh, over the year. But equally unsurprising that Europe is the number one given the, the rights they've acquired in Germany and Italy being the top tier rights in those respective respective nations. Also, what's interesting is they do have some commentary um, in the finances with regards to Matchroom and the relationship there. For that same year, Matchroom USA, which is a joint venture between Matchroom Sport and DAZN, it looks like turned over about 90, 90 odd million in revenue and broke even as a business. I don't know whether that's included in those other numbers or it's completely standalone. My guess is it's standalone. Um, but again, I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that. So it's it maybe, I think one of the things I've heard through the industry over time is they were really expecting, you saw several years ago, they did some major deals with Canelo was one of the major boxers that they did a deal with. They fell out. Uh, there were some contract issues at the time that I think they went back onto the platform after some uh, ebbing and flowing. But look, it's still a significant amount of turnover. The question is what it looks like moving forward. It's hard to say, but I think around 2021, they did start shifting their business from a subscription-only model uh, to pay-per-view on the boxing front. Although my, my timelines are so distorted now these days, I can't remember, you know, basically pre-COVID and post-COVID is about all I remember, basically. So I, I could be wrong with that. 
Yeah. Well, you know, th- there there's all kinds of interesting numbers. I mean, you took some notes on some different things and, you know, I think it's interesting looking at uh, some of the numbers just around kind of their, their carbon footprint, you know, maybe not what I would have expected to see in a financial report, but, you know, it's talking about 23% of events use cloud-based remote commentary. Uh, 82% of editing was done remotely in the cloud. And then it talks about they produced 1.2 tons of carbon dioxide per million of revenue, which is nearly half the number compared to last year. Now, I'll be honest, you talked about uh, visualizing or kind of, you know, talking about what those numbers actually mean. They're not always easy to understand, but I suppose if you can sort of make those sort of improvements there, you know, it is interesting that some of that stuff comes in and be curious to know what some of that remote production does in terms of cutting some of those costs in terms of how much money they're spending um, to try to monetize those rights. Yeah, it's really interesting to see in the financial accounts them have such a, a detailed description of their carbon footprint and sustainability work that they do doing uh there's also a, a stuff specifically stuff in there around their diversity approach uh, as well as a few other areas that they do cover uh, again i'm not an expert on this stuff so maybe that's a requirement these days for this type of business um but it does give you uh, I, I guess it creates a an opportunity for for people who are interested in these businesses to know what sort of impact they are having at that level and these days investors are really looking more closely at businesses that are actively taking sustainable measures so maybe it's a part of that maybe it's a requirement that i'm not too sure of but it's nice to see that the amount of impact or um the improvements they did make on that was pretty significant from year to year that's for sure so i guess to to kind of wrap things up unless there's something else you kind of want to hit on here is you know, we, we both had to zone in kind of our mixed emotions power ranking. Now, granted, we're going to do this every 12 months because we need ample data to sort of sway our opinion one way or another. But just kind of based on what we saw at this financial report that came out after the time of that power rankings, what you've seen, I think, even since the new Amazon partnerships come aboard, since um, the new NFL deal that we just talked about earlier, you know, what is your general sense maybe on the feasibility of hitting that profitability goal by the end of 2023? And even if that doesn't happen, because, you know, that could be, you know, what did, uh, what did Timo Lume call that at Nike, their, their big ambitious goal, their bag meeting or something like that. Um, you know, do you feel over the last four weeks, having consumed all this information, feel like they're in a, perhaps a better position than what we thought when we did those power rankings? I would describe it as I can really see the light at the end of the tunnel given everything I've heard uh, and everything I've, I've read and seen, there is it's not going to be a cakewalk, but they are so confident that it does inspire confidence in me that they're going to get there. Uh, and that's, I think, part part of it, right? That's, that's also good leadership. Um, but I think um, that they have been pragmatic with what their business approach, they have trimmed costs where they've needed to and they've invested where they've needed to. And I think if you look at what the, the moves they've made in the last six months, the announcements they've made, the deals they've made, this shift to be partnering and distributing as much as they possibly can that is own product and platform. And now this shift, this move with NFL, which I think is one of many more I would expect to happen, uh, to build this sort of destination for sports, it almost brings that whole Netflix of sport idea and concept back to the table again, which most of us in the industry did right off. Now, one deal, this NFL deal is not going to, to achieve that. But if they can pull that off, whether it's non-exclusive or whatever, what have you, they can make that work and continue to scale the amount of partnerships they have and ingest more platforms, you know, D2C and OTT platforms on their platform, then 
I you've got to like you've got to really like the direction they are heading, uh, and it's just a matter of time for them to build an absolute market leading platform in this space. You know, we've speculated a few times on different pods about what Apple's approach is. You know, would Netflix potentially consider an acquisition of of, of Apple? So there's a lot to play for here and a lot to speculate about um, what the future holds for them, but. All the noises they are making and most of the moves they are making, you have to admire. And that is a pretty big shift to where I think uh, many people saw things a few years ago. One thing I would add, though, there's still some big question marks around Italy and Syria and whether they'll be have any chance of holding on to those rights for next year or the next right cycle, given the challenges they've had through this current right cycle. If they can hold on to those rights, they can hold on to the Bundesliga in Germany and maybe pick up another one somewhere else, then they're going to be in a really solid position moving forward. Well, one way or another, I will certainly be becoming more familiar with them, say, come about September this time <laughs> uh, this year. So uh, it's good to learn about them. Uh, I fortunately have the benefit of sitting here talking to you more days than not and just being familiar with them. But there will certainly be some people in our audience that have maybe not had quite the deep dive. So hopefully what we were able to go through today is give you an idea of who they are, where they've been, how they've got there, and some of the latest news and financial reporting around them that hopefully – the NFL's new international home to zone is someone that everyone's a bit more familiar with. Um, don't know if there's anything else you want to add to that, Nick. I feel like that was a great comprehensive episode. <laughs> it was a pretty comprehensive one, that's for sure. And look, for those listening in, uh, particularly from those I've talked about, don't be afraid to reach out and let me know if I'm right or wrong with some of this stuff. If I am wrong, then we'll happily uh, uh, let people know uh, in due course in some of it is speculation and guesswork. But look, it's been an interesting it's been an interesting few weeks looking at what they've been doing and I'm pretty sure that more is to come on that regard. So let us also know if you like this format. You know, this is this a pretty big deep dive, right? We've spent the best part of an hour talking about one organization but really digging into the nitty-gritty. Tell us if it's too much. Tell us if, it's, if you like um, this sort of format or you like the faster-paced uh, ones which we have uh, also delivered as well. But thanks, everyone, for, for tuning in. Cheers, everybody. Until next time, go Eagles. <laughs> Before you go, myself and Nick would just like to thank you for tuning into this episode of Streamtime. If you found the episode insightful, please make sure you like and subscribe on whichever platform you listen to. As a growing podcast, we'd greatly appreciate your support in sharing or writing a review. Ultimately, we want this podcast to not only entertain you, but also hopefully help you navigate the digital sports landscape. If you have any feedback on previous episodes or any topics and speakers you'd like to hear from in the future, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can find myself and Nick Meacham on LinkedIn or on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at SportsProChris1. Nick can be found at SportsProNick. Of course, if you want to stay fully up to date on the sports business news cycle, please make sure to visit the SportsPro Media website or sign up to one of our several newsletters to make sure you don't miss anything. Once again, thank you, and we look forward to you joining us next week on the Streamtime Podcast. Podcast.